So, Father, we just thank you for your word. I thank you, Jesus, that I have an opportunity to share, God, what your word says and how it's transformed my life and and what it means to me. And I just count it such a blessing, God, to be here and share with our family in Avon Lake. So I just pray that you would bless us, open our ears and our hearts, let us see, God, what you are saying, um, and be transformed in your love. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Laodicea, it's the seventh church. We have been doing this a long time. I'm sorry it's taken so long. Um, But Laodicea is my, it's the hardest church, right? You all have heard the passage of Jesus spitting you out of your mouth and everybody goes, oh my gosh, right? It's scary. We don't want to be the one that gets spewed out of the Lord's mouth, right? So we're going to talk about that, but you know, I love history and going through these seven churches, especially you can learn so much by diving into the historical context of the Bible. So that's what we're going to start with today. Laodicea was a city in Asia Minor. Um, Now it's Western Turkey. You know that it sits right in the Lycus Valley between the cities of Colossae and Hierapolis. I had to practice these Greek words. So Colossae and Hierapolis. It was built on the original city of Diospolis, and it was known as the city of Zeus. But King Antichochus of the Seleucid Empire named it after his wife, Laodice. So it was a city named after the king's wife who founded this new city. Laodicea was known for its banking center, its commerce, its textile, and medicinal goods. So Laodicea was wealthy. It had money. It was very well taken care of. It was the richest city in the area. It had two theaters, not just one, but two, right? Two theaters. It had a massive stadium. Some say it sat 60,000 seats. That's huge. That's huge. Um, Four markets, right? It not only had Crocker Park, but it had Legacy Village, right? It had Beachwood Place. It had Polaris Shopping Center. What is that called? I don't know. Polaris. It had all of it in that little city. You could go shopping, marketplaces, right? With about 4,500 shops, flowing cold water and warm water, in which we're going to talk about that later. Um, It was the richest, most affluent of all the cities of Asia Minor. And so we had a couple pictures there. You see the magnificent structures that are still there. You know, they've done a lot of archaeological, ar- archaeological digs to preserve some of this. And so you can go see that in, in Turkey today. But there's a lot of history there. But they were wealthy. And so before we get into that pa- the passage, we also want to make a note that um, you can get a quick glimpse. I mean, it's really quick. It's, it's little. In Colossians, because you see the city of Colossae was close to Laodicea, so Paul actually mentions the city of Laodicea in the book of Colossians, which is really interesting. In this letter, he addressed the leaders and the congregations of the city, and we see that there's possibly, we can, we can see the possible first three bishops of the church are mentioned in the New Testament. The first name is um, Archippus. And this is a very specific word from Paul. And I think that we can, we can kind of just take it in and put it in our hearts and our minds. 
and maybe see some correlation with what we're going to hear about. So Paul, this would have been before this letter was written in Revelation. Paul told Archippus in Colossians 4.17, he said, See that you fulfill the ministry you have received from the Lord. So you can look at that and you can think, well, what was he trying to say to him? Was he looking at Archippus and going, hey, come on, get focused. What are you doing? Right? We don't know. Paul just says in Colossians 4.17, see that you fulfill the ministry you have received from the Lord. So it's just one of those things that you go, hmm, Holy Spirit, right? And then the next person, um, one of the next bishops or leaders of the church, early church there in Laodicea, her name was Nympha. And yes, I said her. She was believed to be a woman, by the way, by the way, held church at her house in verse 16. And then Diotrephes, who was uh, was noted in John's third letter, and he didn't have good things to say about him. So we see that Laodicea had a strong church. They were well established in this wealthy city. And Paul had talked to them, right? John had talked about them before this revelation letter. Um, But but we see there's such an important message from Jesus. Um, But we want to see the atmosphere that Jesus is addressing. So you get into Revelation 3.14, and we want to ask ourselves, who is Jesus addressing? Or who is actually speaking? And we know that it's Jesus, right? So we look at his description here, and we're going to do that in verse 14. But who is he talking to? We know that he's talking to the churches. He's talking to the angel of the churches because it was the angel's job to give the information to the church. So if you look at those words, we know that angel actually talks about the pastor or the leader of the church, and he wanted this information to get to him or her so that they could get it to the body of Christ, right? And the body of Christ there is called ecclesia, and ecclesia, I think, is specifically a good reason to go back into this and look at that word for this church specifically because she was supposed to be the called out ones. She was the ones taken out of the culture and put in an area to live differently, to be focused on different things, to have a different purpose and a mission, not like everything else in the world, right? Not like everyone else around them. They were called out. And that's what ecclesia means. So every time he addresses the church, he's talking to the called out ones. Um, So let's go into Revelation 3.14. It says, write down my words and send them to the messenger of the church in Laodicea. So my version is a little bit different. That word messenger could be the angel, could be the pastor, could be the leader. They were the one responsible to getting this information to the church. And this is what he says. These are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. So like every church, we see that Jesus describes himself in a specific way. And we need to slow down and see how he's presenting himself because it's so important. So we look at, first of all, the word the. (laughs) The is a definite article, right? He's explaining that this is who I am. And we know those two words, I am, mean so much to us, right? Because he is, I am. (laughs) And, And here, Jesus is saying, I am the amen. 
I am the faithful and true witness. I am the beginning of God's creation. So we look at the word amen. And in the Greek, it means faithful. It means firm. It means final. That is so huge because remember, this is the final church. And Jesus is presenting them to them and says, I am the final. I'm it. I'm the foundation under your feet. He said, I'm the sure one. I'm most assuredly emphatic or final word. It, it's, it can mean let it be. It can mean so be it, right? When we say amen, that's it. That's the last word of our prayer. We're saying let it be. And Jesus said, I am that. That's powerful. He says, I am the faithful and true witness. And when we think of this word witness, we think of our modern day court system, right? We say, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. (laughs) But it means so much more than that. In the Greek, witness is the word martus. It's the word martus. It's where we get our word martyr. So Jesus is presenting himself not as somebody that sits on a stand saying, I'm going to tell the truth. No, he said, I'm the one that died for you, right? He's saying, I'm the one that gave my life and I showed you how to do it, right? Now, I know all of us in here, we don't probably know any martyrs, right? Personally, any family members die for Jesus yet? But Jesus is saying, you know me. And I showed you what it means to give it all. I showed you what it means to die to yourself, to give everything. And he said, I'm faithful and I'm true. And this is who I am for you. And this should be a challenge to us, right? It should be a challenge to us. I happened upon this book. Now, this book is called Fox's Book of Martyrs. And it was written in like the 1500s. And a lot of you probably have read some of it, but let me tell you, this is the hardest book I've ever read. You read one paragraph and you're like, oh, what they went through. I mean, I can't even say it in here, right? But it's a challenge to me. I'm like, what am I complaining about today? Like, what am I having a hard time standing up for today? Like, oh my gosh, right? And that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I gave everything for you, everything for the truth. I'm faithful and I'm true. And it challenges us and it convicts us. And then finally, he says, I am the beginning of all things. He's the first. And this denotes principality, right? He, he owns it all. <laughs> it's all his. He's been here from the beginning and he's not going anywhere. His rule, his majesty, he is the initial starting point in Genesis. We first see him in Genesis 3. He was the answer to the sin, right? And we see him throughout the Bible, throughout the whole Old Testament. In John 1, it it says, I, in the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God. That is Jesus. He's the beginning. And then finally, in in Colossians 1.15, it says he's the firstborn of all creation. And Jesus is saying to the church of Laodicea, he's saying, please remember, this is all about me. And I feel like that's what Holy Spirit has been speaking to me lately. Like Mary, focus. This is all about me. 
It's all about Jesus. Everything you do, every conversation you have, every goal you have, everything you eat, everything you breathe, everything you buy at the store, everything you do in your house, it's all about me. And that's what he's saying to the church of Laodicea. And I feel like it's the same thing Paul was saying to to, um, the first bishop, bishop, like, hey, focus. This is all about Jesus. So this is who is speaking to them. And to give the final, the amen word to the final church. And remember, when we first started this whole session months ago, (laughs) series months ago, it applies to the final church in the time of John, but it also, we believe, applies to the final church of the age. And I believe that's what we are. We are. We are the final church. So when we go forward into verses 15, 16, 17, and 18, we're going to see this, but we're going to also internalize it. Amen? And ask the Holy Spirit to speak to us personally. So let's go to Revelation 3, 15, and 16. Jesus continues talking to them. He says, I know your works. You are neither cold with apathy nor hot with passion. And it would be better if you were one or the other, but you are neither. So because you are lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. That is like the scariest verse in the Bible, right? Because we're like, oh, what? I don't want to be lukewarm. <laughs> and Jesus is using something, though, in here. And this is why it's so good to learn history and, and context, because Jesus is using something that they knew what he was talking about. They knew, remember in the beginning I told you they were the first city with running water? They tried to make it cold. They tried to make it hot. But guess what? It didn't work out too well for them. The city of Laodicea was so wealthy and innovative that they wanted to be the first city in the modern world then to have this running water. And where were they going to get it? So nearby in the city of Colossal, I think you have another little map, Martha, if you could help us out. In the city of Colossal, there were cold springs because it was higher elevation in the mountains. And so they thought, man, if we could tap in to those cold, icy spring water and bring it down to the city of Laodicea, we could have cold water. And so they built aqueducts, and there's a picture of that too. Those are the hot springs. Aren't those beautiful? Like, I want to go. And those are the cold springs. And they, they built these aqueducts that would try to bring this water from Hierapolis and Colossae down to Laodicea. Isn't that awesome? So Jesus was talking about something. They knew exactly what he was talking about. Because the, as soon as the water got there, they were so excited. They got the aqueducts built. And as soon as they got the water, they drank it. And it was lukewarm. It was disgusting because the clay, the mineral deposit that was in the pipe that they built had leaked into the water and it was putrid and it was disgusting and they couldn't even drink it. So all that work was for nothing. And so they knew what they were, they knew what Jesus was talking about. I thought that was so cool. So they went to work, and they tried to get this pipe system down, but it failed. And Jesus is saying, 
this is what I feel like when you're busy, 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 and you're not focused on me. You're not focused on the gospel. You're not focused on what's burning in my heart. You're not focused on what's cool and refreshing for the people around us, right? He said, I know your works. Based on Paul's letter to the leader, I shared that already, that he had to remind the bishop to see that you are fulfilling the ministry to the Lord. And maybe it was because they were distracted. They were off course of Christ's call to make disciples, to spread the gospel. Maybe their focus had been shifted off of being laborers of the harvest onto building the biggest and the baddest, right? Because they had the money to do it. Maybe they were so worried about being the most innovative, the most relevant. After all, they were the accomplished. They were the wealthy church. They could do everything they wanted to do. And this morning, I feel like we need to listen with honest ears and say, Jesus, how, does that, how do I look like this? How does this apply to my life? Because Jesus wasn't impressed with their aqueduct system. <laughs> He wasn't impressed with their accomplishments. He said, I wish you were hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, you're just, uh, right? You're like that, that word, uh, uh. You're not, you're not passionate. You're not exciting to be around. You're not on fire for Jesus or cold or refreshing. You know, you don't bring in the living water of Jesus everywhere you go. You're just, uh, I'm okay. I love Jesus. I'm a Christian. And Jesus is saying, I want more. <laughs> I want more. And I think he was also saying, you are clueless that you're lukewarm. <laughs> they had low self-awareness. They thought they were fine. There's so many psychological definitions and examples of this term, low self-awareness. Anybody, heard, anybody think about that term? Do you, know you're low, do you know you have low self-awareness if you have low self-awareness? Right? Exactly. Like, so it's like one of those terms and those ideas that you just have to sit on for a while. You're just like, hmm, first of all, what is it? Is it possible that I might be it, right? Like low self-awareness. <laughs> yeah, marriage helps. You're right. You're right. You're right. <laughs> but I, I wrote down here, seeing me as God sees me. And I think we're really good at trying and working really hard in a positive way to, like, have this positive identity. But, like, to see me the way God sees me in a negative way, I mean, we're not really taught to do that. Right? But that's self-awareness. Like, that's the Holy Spirit. Show me where I'm missing the mark. Right? Show me where I should be called out of culture. Doing things different. Thinking differently having different goals, having different purpose, having a different mission, right? Viewing my life, my purpose and mission from eternity's perspective. And I believe Jesus is saying here, you don't even realize that you're missing the refreshing properties of cold water or the healing properties of hot water. And one Bible commentary, as you read through it, he said, lukewarmness is as self-complacency. Self-complacency, the feeling you have when you are satisfied with yourself. Whoa! Right? Is the American church, are we satisfied with where we are? 
Whoa, so convicting. I'm a fine Christian. I go to church. I have my morning devotions, right? But with this can come the notion, it doesn't always, but it can come the notion that we have this attitude of smugness, right? Of excessive self-satisfaction, that I'm doing enough, right? After all, I have aqueducts to build, right? We give ourselves this purpose and this mission of building aqueducts, and that was never Jesus's idea. We have to pay attention to this. Each one of us individually, right? We have to ask Jesus, does our culture, does our church culture, because you know we have church culture, People outside of the church, when they come in church, they're expected to learn the church culture, right? They're expected to learn our terminology when we stand up, when we sit down, what we do, when we look, don't turn around during the message. Like, there's, there's church culture. <laughs> but maybe some of the things that we're doing is off. Maybe the way that we built normal, right, is lukewarm, and we have to pay attention. We have to allow the Holy Spirit to bring that mirror up to us and let us self-evaluate and not just stay self-complacent. Consider our lives and measure them up to the word of God, to the examples we see in the word of God, to the examples we see in history. Did you know that Timothy, I never knew how Timothy died. It's not in the Bible, but it's in history. You know how he died? Timothy went to a processional of pagans. They were on their way to worship an idol and give sacrifice. And it was one of the, we've seen it throughout these churches, this celebration of just revelry where it's just disgusting and sexually immoral and a parade through the street. And Timothy stopped it and he said, you can't do this. You've got to worship God and God alone. And they got so angry with him that they beat him with clubs. And two days later at home, he didn't make it. So we have to line ourselves up with these people in the word that we've seen and we know about, right? Do our lives resemble righteousness. In Matthew 3, 8, let's look at that scripture verse. It says, your life must bear the fruit of turning towards righteousness. And I love that verse that Jesus uses that present tense of turning. He doesn't say turn one time. He says, turn constantly towards righteousness. Every day we wake up, every time we mess up, man, I mess up every day. I just messed up yesterday with my sister. I had to text her this morning and say, April, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> She's like, I, just, I forgot. And I'm like, yeah, but Holy Spirit didn't forget. <laughs> right? And the conviction comes, but it's for the turning. It's for the turning towards righteousness. And this is going to keep us from becoming lukewarm. Let's go on to Revelation 3.17. Jesus is still talking, and he says, You claim I am rich, I have accumulated riches, and I need nothing. But you do not realize that you are miserable, pathetic, poor, blind, and naked. Yikes, right? 
Jesus, again, is addressing the low self-awareness of the church. In the natural, they're wealthy. They have flourishing businesses. You know, they not only had, I, I mentioned the medicinal goods, they had a special eye and ear salve, basically pharmaceutical, <laughs> that was made from a local stone and was produced by a booming pharmaceutical industry and medical school. And then they had this special black wool that they created these garments that would be shipped all across the known world because they were so expensive and so luxurious that they were wealthy. Like they had their stuff together, right? <laughs> and and Jesus is saying, he's addressing every single thing. He's saying, you're blind. You have the, the, you have the most innovative eye salve in the world, but you're blind. He's saying, you have the be- most beautiful, sought-after garments, but you're naked. He was speaking to them so personally. And then these two industries made their um, city so wealthy, they became the bank, right? We know how that goes. Um, Jesus is declaring that the church was finding security in the culture around them, declaring that they don't need anything. If you think about church today, we have everything. <laughs> you know, I've been in a couple third world countries, Haiti, Nepal, and the churches. I mean, we have a little, we have the littlest campus. This building is, we're suffering for space, right? But not like Haitian churches. <laughs> not like our little Nepal churches that we were sitting on the floor, right? In the dirt. We can have church and not need Jesus to show up, right? We can. That's just how it is in America. And he's saying, you think you don't need anything. That scripture verse in 1 Samuel 16, 7, it says, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And I love that scripture verse. It was talking about David, but he's looking at our heart this morning as well. See, and he does it with love. He doesn't do it with condemnation. This is what I felt the Holy Spirit was saying. He said, we see wealth around us, but how many of us are addicted, right? How many of us are tormented by past trauma? We have thriving businesses, but we have broken relationships. We are successful by the standards of culture, but we walk around void of purpose and would rather just end it all. Jesus is saying, I see the real you. I see that you're miserable, poor, blind, and naked. He sees it, and he sees us with love. He's like, I want, I want to give you the stuff that really heals. He loves this church. He is not done with him. He has hope for them. And this is why I slowed down with this. I'm going to be talking about it next week too because we don't want to to miss one word that Jesus wants to give this church. If we truly believe it could be us, and I do, we want every single word that he has to say to us. And that's where we are in Revelation 3.18. He tells us exactly what to do. Isn't that exciting? He tells us exactly what we can do. He says, so here is what I suggest you do. 
and we're going to go through it. He says, buy true gold from me, gold refined by the fire so that you can be truly rich. White garments to cover you so that you can keep the shame of your nakedness from showing. An eye ointment to treat your eyes so that you may see clearly. Jesus didn't send fire from heaven like Sodom and Gomorrah, but he instead gave him gave them instructions so that they could correct. And that's what he's doing with us. He's saying, you have time to correct. You have time to get it right. <laughs> so let's, let's look. Again, he's speaking their language. He said, buy gold from me. Go to the marketplace. Go to one of, one of your 4,000 4, stores, right? Buy gold from me, he said. And the, the key here was being purified in the fire. And when you think of being purified, gold, you can think about it as being purified in trial, right? Or purified in his presence. Which one do we want to pick, <laughs> right? In his presence. But unfortunately, he didn't promise us it wouldn't happen with trial. It happens with trial too. In James 1, 2 through 4, it says, Don't run from tests and hardships, brothers and sisters. As difficult as they are, you will ultimately find joy in them. And this is the big word in that scripture verse. If... <laughs> If you embrace them, you will find joy in them and your faith will blossom under pressure and teach you true patience as you endure. He's saying you're going to have trials and hardships, but if you handle it the right way, (laughs) if you embrace them, if you trust me to take you through, right? I can teach you true patience as you endure. And true patience brought on by endurance will equip you to complete the long journey and cross the finish line. Mature, complete, and wanting nothing. We need each other to cross this finish line, right? We need to be complete, mature, and wanting nothing. But if not, we can go through that trial without accomplishing all of that. And then he just lets us go through the next one. Because you didn't get it that time. No, thank you. Let me do the hard work and get it this time, right? This is the refining process of gold, and it creates the pure gold in our life, which is the true riches. And then the fire of his presence. Guess what? We get to choose to be refined in the fire of his presence. You know that? That's amazing. Like the the veil was torn. We get to go into the fire of his presence anytime we want. We want extra credit, let's get in his presence. We want to be pure, let's get into his presence. We get that's why we that's why we do a half hour of worship. I know I can feel it sometimes. I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't know if this is too long. Everybody's gonna be mad. No, we're in the fire of his purifying presence, right? What if we pursued his presence as much as we pursued this world? In Malachi 3, 2 through 3, it says he is a purifying fire. He is like lye soap. (laughs) Like a refiner of silver, he will purify the descendants of Levi. And you are all priests and kings unto our God. He says, until they are pure, 
unallied gold and silver. What is it? Unalloyed. I thought I said. Okay. Oh, thank you for grace. Letting him refine us in his presence. <laughs> I guess he gets me back, right? Because I'm sitting there talking to him the whole time. All right, all right. Yeah, yeah. So we purposely put ourselves in his presence to be purified. And then he said, buy white garments. It's a stark opposite of their main industry, which was the precious black wool garments that were so sought after. But it represents the righteousness of Jesus. And he invites us to put on this new life. So many of us forgot to get dressed this morning, right? When we wake up, did we forget to get dressed this morning? Are we walking around in our own righteousness? Because if we are, we're naked. That's just the truth. We have nothing to put on, right? We have no righteousness that's valuable. Nothing can cover us as much as we try. We're naked. And that's what Jesus is saying, by my righteousness. In Ephesians 4, 24 through 27, you might want to just jot this down so you can look at it later. I'm kind of going fast now because I don't want to keep you too long. But it says, then you are ready to put on your new self, modeled after the very likeness of God, truthful, righteous, and holy. So put away your lies and speak the truth no one other, no, to one another because we are all part of one another. And the reason I'm reading this to you, because this last portion of this verse is so important that we learn. When you are angry, don't let it carry into your sin. Don't let the sun set with your with your anger in your heart, or give the devil room to work. And Adrian talked about responsibility. We have responsibility to put this garment on every day, every day, and work in it and function it and live in it, because if we don't, the devil is going to have room to work. He'll have room to work, and we can't allow him to take ground back from us. He has white garments of his righteousness, but we have to make an exchange. He said, buy it from me. And we buy it from him the one time, but we buy it from him every single morning. We exchange it every single morning. We wake up and we realize my righteousness is not good enough. And I'm going to put on these earthly natural clothes, but I need to put on his righteousness. Amen? And Jesus is talking to these Christians who actually thought they were the best-dressed Christians on earth. (laughs) Isn't that so crazy how personal he was and how intimate he was? Finally, eye ointments. Treat your eyes so you can see clearly. That's what Jesus said. He said, get the eye salve that really works. But he's also letting them know that they are missing some things. They can't see. And again, just like low self-awareness, it's like you don't know what you don't know, right? Like we are so dependent on the Holy Spirit and Jesus. Like I need to, I need to know what I'm missing, Jesus. I need to know what I'm not seeing right before my face. Show me where I need to grow. Show me where I need to lay myself before you and get the salve that you're offering me on my eyes so I can see. 
In Matthew 6, 22 through 23, it says the eye is the lamp of the body. You draw light into your body through your eyes and light shines out to the world through your eyes. So if your eye is well and shows you what is true, then your whole body will be filled with light. But if your eye is clouded or evil, then your whole body will be filled with evil and dark clouds. And the darkness that takes over the body of a child of God who has gone astray, that is the deepest, darkest darkness there is. So we need our eyes to receive truth. There's this term, and some of you have probably heard of it before. It's called neuroplasticity. Anybody heard that? Neuroplasticity. It's the brain's ability to be shaped, to grow, to change based on what we input. So what we input, what we look at, what we read, what we experience, what we understand, what we focus on, it changes our brain. Scientists didn't know this before. This is pretty new. But there's this really cool story, and I have to tell you about it. The London cabbies, it's the story of the London, London cabbies, they call, they're called. They're cab drivers, okay? There's this test that they do, and they have to pass this test in order to be, have a job of a London cab drivers. And the test is called the knowledge. And they study for four years for this test. Four years. This is what they have to know. 320 basic routes, 25,000 streets within these routes, 20,000 landmarks and places of interest. It takes four years of committed study. And at the end of it, those who have done the work end up with what amounts to be a roadmap of London imprinted into their brains. Prior to the learning, the part of the brain responsible for spatial memory which is the posterior hippocampus, was much the same as everybody else's, right? But after, fast forward to the end of training, four years later, it was found to be significantly larger. The longer the cabbie had been in the job, the bigger that part of the brain was. Isn't that fascinating? Learning and repeated exercise had changed the brain according to the job it was needed for. Our brains adapt to what we're looking at, (laughs) to our input. If you let your mind settle on self-criticism, self-loathing, pain, distress, stress, worry, fear, regret, guilt, these feelings and thoughts will shape your brain. You will be more vulnerable to worry to depression, to anxiety, and be more likely to notice the negatives of a situation. Frame things in a negative way and be barreled off track by what you could have or should have done. I have to read this word for word because we need it word for word this morning. On the other hand, if you focus on positive feelings and frame situations with a tilt towards the positive, (laughs) I'm holding up my Bible. (laughs) Eventually, your brain will take on a shape that reflects this hardwiring and strengthening connections around resilience, optimism, gratitude, positive emotion, and self-esteem. Jesus is saying, let me heal your eyes. See truth about yourself. See truth about those around you. See truth He has it for us, and it's right here. This is the eye salve that he's offering us. 
And we do this by meditating on it, by reading it. If you're too old to memorize, I'm too old to memorize. I gave up. I've been talking about it all year. I can't memorize anymore. (laughs) So you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to plaster my mirrors with Bible verses. (laughs) Like my mom always said, keep a a scripture in your pocket, right? It's going to be before me regardless. Psalms 19.8, it says, The eternal's directions are correct, giving satisfaction to the heart. God's commandments are clear, lending clarity to the eyes. Isn't that good? Everything we do, everything we think about, everything we find ourselves in, what do we ask? We say, what does God say about this? What does God say about my situation? What does God say about my spouse? What does God say about my financial situation or my job? Right? Everything has to be lined up with the word of God. So as we close, (laughs) we buy gold, we buy white garments, and we buy eye salve from Jesus. Right? He's got it for us. He's saying, give me what you have, your life, and I'll give you this. You can have it for free. All it takes is your life. (laughs) All it takes is my lordship. Right? All it takes is relationship with me would you stand up with me Jesus we ask we ask you right now Jesus for gold purified in the fire we ask Jesus for your righteousness as white garments that we put on what you paid to give us what you died for we put on your righteousness this morning and every morning And Father, we ask for the eye salve, your word, your truth that transforms our brains, transforms our lives, our relationships, how we think about life, how we see our purpose, God, how we see other people. We thank you that you loved Laodicea. We thank you, Father, that you gave them a chance to correct. And we will see next week that they most likely corrected. And this morning, I believe you're speaking life over the church in America. You're getting ready to pour out your spirit in the church over America. Because you're doing something here in our hearts individually and as a whole body as your ecclesia the called out ones the ones that don't belong to the world the ones that have a bigger purpose that have a bigger bigger mission it's called the gospel so I thank you Jesus in here as we posture ourselves before you and we ask you to show us Show us what we can't see. Show us how to change our hearts, how to change our lives, how to come before you daily with humility. We love you, Jesus. We just declare that it's all about you. Just declare that on your lips this morning. My life is all about you, Jesus. I just want to offer an opportunity to respond to this message. And you can do it where you are in your seat, or you can come up as we worship. And any kind of response.